Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you about one of our newest podcasts, Ringer FC. Each week, Chris Ryan, Ryan O'Hanlon, Micah Peters, and various Ringer staff members will be discussing everything happening in the world of soccer. From the Premier League to the state of the game in America, let our soccer experts guide you along ahead of the 2018 FIFA World Cup. So make sure to subscribe and listen to Ringer FC wherever you get your podcasts. Baseball breaks your heart. It is designed to break your heart. The game begins in the spring when everything else begins again, and it blossoms in the summer, filling the afternoons and evenings. And then soon as the chill rains come, it stops and leaves you to face the fall all alone. You count on it, rely on it to buffer the passage of time, to keep the memory of sunshine and high skies alive. And then, just when the days are all twilight, when you need it the most, it stops. A. Bartlett Giamatti. You're listening to The Ringer MLB Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Michael Bauman. My partner is the sun god of Oregon, Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> ben. Yeah. Wow. You put me into a real reverie there. I, I was thinking about calling up Ben Gibbard and seeing if we could get a minor version of, of the theme song in honor of Rich Hill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was something. That was one of the most memorable games of the season, maybe of my baseball watching career. Something that, frankly, could have only happened to Rich Hill. Yes. I'm referring, of course, to the fact that the Dodgers lost a game. Yeah. <laughs> I was reminded of, uh, so Rich Hill lost his perfect game on an error by Logan Forsyth in the ninth. This was the first time we've got bunches and bunches of fun facts about this game. First time a perfect game bid had ever been ended on an error in the ninth inning. And I went back and looked because I was thinking, didn't Jonathan Sanchez lose a perfect game in the ninth inning? No, it turns out Juan Uribe allowed the only base runner that game earlier in the game. I think the the eighth inning. But mm-hmm. I went back and there have been, what, 23 perfect games in MLB history? Sure. So this is, you know, I, I was thinking that it would have been really special if Jonathan Sanchez had pitched that perfect game. It has actually happened fewer times in baseball history that Jonathan Sanchez has started a game and not walked anybody than somebody <laughs> has, has thrown a perfect game. Eight career starts for Jonathan Sanchez with zero walks. So at least Juan Uribe didn't ruin that. Man, he was... He was wild. That was he, he was and, not very effective. He was really good for for a couple uh, of years. Occasionally, yeah, he had his moments. Uh, this was also the the first time a no hit bid had been ended on a walk off home run. And Rich mm-hmm. Hill. So, like, I love first of all that he pitched the tenth inning. I mean, he got through that. Of all the improbable things, I think the fact that Rich Hill pitched into the tenth is probably is up there because. To have the Dodgers let him go that long, and he didn't go that long, really, because he threw 99 pitches, pitches, just fastballs and curveballs, I think, exclusively. So obviously, he was extremely efficient, and we know that he has been removed from historic games in the past because his pitch count was too high and his blisters were heating up. So it is impressive that he even got the chance to do this. As a reader named Matthew Indovina pointed out to me on Twitter, it was both a Maddox and a Haddix. Because he ended up with fewer than 100 pitches, and it was kind of a Harvey Haddix game. He lost after nine no-hit innings, but I blame the juiced ball for Josh Harrison's ah, first, he got, first he got row all home run. He, he got a good wood on it, but I don't know that it would have gone out in another year. If Hill had retired a single batter in the 10th, he would have become only the, the fifth starting pitcher since the year 2000. To Yeah, 
and and a Dodgers starter pitching into extra innings. Dodgers starters wild. don't pitch into the seventh inning, so that is pretty amazing. It's just it absolutely wild. You know, the Dodgers didn't score a run. There are fifteen different ways that this was just absolutely bonkers. That so yeah, and yeah. I, I thought once once Utley laid out for that line drive, like there's like I mean it's just absolute nonsense. But they say every great no hitter, or great perfect game needs that one spectacular defensive play, and I thought that was it. I thought he was right. Yeah, there were a couple in this game. Right? There was the Utley catch and there was the Adrian Gonzalez catch of a pop-up with his mm-hmm. back looking more able than I would have imagined. But yeah, I mean, this is just the latest entry in the crazy late career of Rich Hill. I am ready for the Rich Hill book. The I don't know whether it's a, weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether it's an autobiography or biography, but his story just has so many highs and so many lows, both personal and professional. He said family tragedy, his career has completely run off the rails. He's returned to be one of the best pitchers in baseball. Even just a couple months ago, it looked like maybe it was over and the Dodgers had committed to him on a multi-year deal and then the blisters and he wasn't pitching very well. And over the last month or more, probably at this point, he's been just peak Rich Hill. And this was just the, the latest example of it. He remains one of the most enjoyable pitchers to watch and also just one of the best stories in baseball. So just a crazy game and sort of sad, sort of heartwarming that he's even in the position to pitch a game like that in the first place. Yeah, I'm sure he'll appreciate that more in the morning. (laughs) Yes, probably. (laughs) He hid his depression well if he was feeling it in the moment, both with the error that Logan Forsyth committed and then with the walk-off. He didn't really show any emotion on the mound, although I'm sure he was feeling it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the next thing. Yeah. So we're going to talk in in just a few minutes to Russell Carlton from Baseball Prospectus, and we're going to ask him about the breakdown in positions in recent years, but also as a long-term trend. And we've talked about a few of those instances recently, but it's hard to say what exactly a a position is or where a person is supposed to stand anymore, what a traditional defensive alignment looks like. Those things have evolved so much in the past few years. So we'll get into that shortly, but we did want to talk about the home run record and the perceived home run record because the subject of a recent podcast, John Carlos Stanton, came out and made some comments about the home run record. And he acknowledged that the record is the record, referring to Barry Bonds' record of 73 home runs in a single season. But he also said that he considers the record to be Roger Maris's 61, which happens to be a mark that Stanton himself is challenging this season. And so there's been some back and forth. And, and we've heard this sort of thing before. Chris Davis, a few years ago, when he was kind of chasing the, the Maris record, also claimed that he thinks that's the real record. And so there's been a bunch of debate and back and forth, and there's no way to conclusively settle this. We know that sure the there record is. books you can look say at the record book. It says yeah, 73. Sure. It does, yes. And I don't think that changes how some people feel. And I think you could claim that a record, I mean, by one definition of a record, certainly it's just the most or the highest or, or whatever. It's more than someone has had before. And the record books do and will continue to say it was Barry Bonds. And I certainly consider Barry Bonds's record the record. But If someone doesn't consider that legitimate, well, I can see that stance and we will probably deconstruct that stance now. But I do understand the opinion when you have someone who is so widely known to have cheated and to have used substances that were banned and 
almost certainly would not have set that record without them. I can see a case for that because the other records and excluding McGuire and Sosa, who probably fall into the same bucket as Bonds, every record has some sort of asterisk you can apply if you want to. And so maybe it doesn't make sense to apply any asterisks. That is the way that I feel, I think. But if you want to differentiate between them and say that Bonds is different from the previous ones, you can make that case. And, and Stanton is making that case. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that discussion really cheapens what's Stanton's doing in a way because by focusing on the the record it obscures how special a 60 or even a 50 homer season is and I think I think I I ran down the numbers when we were talking about him a couple weeks ago so I won't do that again but if he gets to 50 it's just a remarkable accomplishment and if he gets to 60 it's going to be a historic season whether that shows up in the record books or not and I just feel like it was never about the drugs both in the sense that and I won't go into like I've got what is probably a 40 minute monologue in my head about the the racial underpinnings of the war on drugs in, in the United States in general and the Cold War hysteria of PEDs and just all of the ugliness that boils into us being puritanical about this one thing in sports culture, which is not to condone cheating or anything like that. It's just like, this is not the cross I would want to die on. Mm-hmm. But as far as Bonds having the record, I guess the people who were in a position to shape the sports discussion at the time who were mad that their dad's favorite player didn't hold the record anymore, they're going to die eventually and we can (laughs) stop having this conversation. Yeah, it's I mean, it's ridiculous. The record is what the record is. And Stanton is remarkable whether he sets the record or not. Yeah. And I think that if Stanton ends up with, say, 62 or 63, you could say that that's maybe more meaningful than 60 or 59. And not just because it's three or four more home runs, but because there is something to that number. There Mm -hmm. is some residual meaning to those marks that a lower number might not have. But The obvious thing to point out here is that every record has some circumstance associated with it that enabled that record. And if you think Roger Maris's was the legitimate record, well, Roger Maris played in an expansion season. And so maybe he was facing weaker competition because of that. Lefty header with a right field porch 210 feet from home plate. Right. In a great lineup where he was getting lots of plate appearances, et cetera, et cetera. And Babe Ruth obviously played in a segregated era of baseball. That is a, a big asterisk than anything you could apply to Maris. Now, he didn't create that condition. You can't hold him personally responsible for that, but he was playing under those conditions and might not have accomplished what he accomplished if he had been playing in a, a different circumstance. So whatever year, whatever record you pick, if Stanton does it this year, you can say it's because the home run rate is higher than it has ever been before. And yeah, that's ball. certainly a, a oh, legitimate God. critique oh, too. Oh, God, is that going to be... <laughs> I mean, that's that's meaningful, right? I mean, you, yeah, you have, it would to have to be, era, yeah. adjust any number in baseball. And so if, if Stanton does it, that's a, a legitimate case against what he did. I mean, I'm not going to tell him that, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I will probably not be saying so to his face, but that's something that you would think about if you're looking at it historically speaking. So that's just the way things are in baseball. You have to era adjust and park adjust everything. And those are imperfect processes. So because of that, now, you know, maybe you say that actual cheating is different from these sort of institutional baked in conditions that other players faced. But really, it all just comes down to things being in the favor of a hitter or going against the hitter. And it's really hard to equalize all of those things and completely strip out all of the factors that influence one player's performance. So 
that's why I just kind of default to the guy who hit the most home runs has the home run record. And obviously, it's important to remember the context of those events. But Mm -hmm. I think for me, the Bonds record is the record. And if Stanton gets to 60-something, that will be extremely impressive. But that is uh, about where it will end for me. That's because you're very wise. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right. So let's take a quick little break, and we'll be back with Russell Carlton. Are you hungry for a delicious new food podcast? If so, then you should check out House of Carbs, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Each week, noted food enthusiast Joe House is joined by celebrity chefs, critics, and other heavyweights in the world of food to weigh in on the latest trends in cuisine, essential items to cook, and must-visit restaurants. So whether you're a fine diner or fast foodie, subscribe and listen to House of Carbs, available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So just in the last week of Major League Baseball, we have seen the Cubs try a four-man outfield against Joey Votto. We have seen also the Cubs play Anthony Rizzo at third base, making him the first left-handed thrower to play there since 1997. We've also seen the Mets switch Estrubal Cabrera and Travis Darno between second and third 22 times in the span of a single game. We've also seen Chris Jimenez of the Twins break some barriers, both by pronouncing his name Jimenez and by being the first player since the 60s to make five or more appearances as a pitcher and as a position player, which he's done at first base, third base, and left field. We had the Christian Bethencourt experiment. We've got Shohei Otani on the way. So all of this seems to add up to positional anarchy, which is the title of an article that was published on Wednesday by Russell Carlton of Baseball Prospectus, who joins us now. Hello, Russell. Hi, guys. Hi. So each of these circumstances I've described has been a one-time thing recently, maybe a one-time thing for a while. But as you write in this article, they are maybe the leading edge of a trend that has been going on in baseball for a really long time. And it's kind of the opposite of the specialization that has happened among pitchers, where in the past you just had pitchers, and now you have relievers and starters, and rarely the twain shall meet. Nowadays, we have players playing many more positions than they typically did, or at least there's been some broadening in the definition of, of what constitutes players at any particular position. So can you go over the, the research that you did and the trend and why you think it might be happening? Well, I started back in 1871. I figured if we're going to start this, let's start way, way back in the very beginning. And because baseball is kind of creepily obsessive about how it keeps its uh, records, <laughs> I was able to pull data on where, how many games people had played at uh, any number of positions and either pitcher or anywhere in the field. And I took a look and I said, okay, well, Let's, you know, we, you get the occasional Anthony Rizzo at third base, but let's look for guys who have been, had played five games within a season at a position. Okay, well, you know, everybody's got their primary position. Well, how many guys had played two different positions at, at, with five games? How many had played three, four? You, you kind of keep going up. And uh, I graphed it out and I saw that there is a steady line up from, oh, like the 1920s onward, where you're going to see players who played three different positions. Now, that could be left, center, and right, but even if you, you kind of make outfield as just kind of one big position, you're see- still seeing guys who are, you know, playing two infield positions and, quote-unquote, the outfield at a higher rate now, to the point where, you know, most teams have one or two guys who are just, you know, multi-positionalists who 
float around. If you're the Cubs, it's basically your entire roster. Mm -hmm. But it's something that we've kind of seen teams who, who have started to invest in this. And you see experimentation with a guy kind of floating between, uh, you know, a Javi Baez on the Cubs who will play, you know, second and short and little third here. And then Chris Bryan will shift into left field or first base or play a little center. And so it is, it's something that has been growing over the years and the numbers bear it out. So you mentioned in the piece that one of the driving factors is the rise of the God, you know, as many as 14 person pitching staff that, that we've seen <laughs> nowadays. It had, did you look into how closely the number of relief pitchers tracks the growth of guys playing multiple positions or or do you if not do you have a theory that you know how much of this is the result of you've got two bench players so one's got to play every infield <laughs> position and one's got to play every outfield position. Yeah, I didn't look that that specifically, but I mean it's not it's not a secret that you know we've kind of gone from the 10-man pitching staff to the 11-man to the 12-man, and now we've kind of got the octopus bullpen with eight with eight pitchers out there. It eventually just kind of becomes a math problem. If you have 13 pitchers on your staff, that's 12 position players, and either eight or nine, depending on which league you're in, are going to be starting at any one time. So that basically means that either you have a position that is uncovered, or you have to have a bench player who can fill in on that position, or you have to have a bench player who can fill in for the position of the starter who can also then go and fill in in that position. And then suddenly it kind of becomes one of those uh, those slide puzzles where you have to you know move one piece at a time all around the board uh, until you you show the picture. And, you know, it makes for some more interesting box scores. You see this guy played, you know, short third and left field all in the same game just because that's where he had to go. But yeah, I mean, I think it's the pitching and in the era of hyper-specialized one inning, sometimes less than one inning guys, you know, you, you just need to have a lot of arms around. And so that means you have to sacrifice a guy who in the past on that roster spot would have been taken up by a dedicated backup first baseman who was there basically so he could pinch hit and occasionally give the regular first baseman uh, a breather one once in a while. One manifestation of this, which is another thing you've written about, you wrote an article in April called The Disappearing Left Fielder, and you found that the starting left fielder is almost not a thing anymore, or it's a lot less of a thing than it used to be. Can you explain what's going on in, in left field and how that relates to this increasing positional flexibility? Well, left field, I originally started out with, I wanted to look at at catchers and to see, you know, most teams have a dedicated backup catcher who plays quite a bit. You know, you get day off for a day game after a night game and catching's hard. So the backup catcher plays a lot. And I said, well, I wonder what's the spot on the field that does that. And I figured, oh, it's going to be catcher. And it turned out that left field gave it a run for its money. And I was like, wait a minute. So I, I looked and I'm like, oh, well, who are the 30 guys who got the most plate appearances in left field? Okay. And what percentage of all plate appearances by left fielders did that take up? And it turned out that it was only about 60% of those plate appearances were taken by the guy who's kind of the quote unquote starting left fielder. And it also turned out that in terms of just the sheer number of bodies that went through left field in 2016 was the year I was using, left field outpaced everybody. I mean, there were just so many guys who just said, oh, okay, I'll go play left field because why not? And so I started really digging into it. And what you found was that teams were a little bit more willing to say, you know what, utility infielder guy, we need you to play today because we just kind of need a warm body or, you know, it's a good matchup or we think we can get an extra righty into the lineup or something like that. 
And, well, let's see, we've, we've already got, you know, second, short, and third spoken for. Why don't you just go out and play left? You know, just do your best. And it kind of makes sense. The left fielder's the player who gets the least to do during a game, just if you look at the number of chances that they record. And, you know, if you're, if you're already somebody who's a little further up the defensive spectrum and, you know, you're, if you're a utility infielder and you can hack it at short, and that's kind of why you got the job, or you're a fourth outfielder and you have the ability to play center, you're going to be okay in left field. And so it's, you know, it's it's one of those that teams have turned into a slush spot. And it used to be, you know, the domain of the big guy who was, because first base was already occupied, and that's where you tried to hide him. But it turns out more and more that that isn't the case. Teams are just kind of using left field as as a, a slush spot for for sticking somebody in there. So it's it was an interesting thing, and and you know none of the other positions really show that kind of pattern. I was going to ask if that's doing anything to sort of the the offensive expectations at the position, but you're seeing a lot of times like I think one thing that's really driving this apart from the pitching staff is you see guys like Bryant who are among the best power hitters in baseball who are six foot five and two hundred thirty pounds, but are also athletic enough to play center, and because the ball is juiced and because everybody's uppercutting now. Now, you take a backup shortstop who couldn't hit his way out of a wet paper bag like Chris Taylor, and the Dodgers put him out in left field, and all of a sudden he's hitting like Chris Bryant. So, it, you know, it's allowing everybody to – I wonder if there's going to be less difference offensively from position to position as well. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, it's – you know, you kind of get – I think some of what what's happening is that it does allow you to play the matchups a little better. And so maybe, you know, a guy like Chris Taylor is going out to left field on a day when they kind of go and they, well, you know, maybe that guy he could, he could hit a little bit against and, you know, he might see that guy well or do well against what that guy's arsenal is. And if you throw enough, if you're able to grab enough of those little tiny advantages, after a while, you know, a little plus a little plus a little adds up to a lot and the ball's juiced. So, so I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's part of, uh, I, I think that's a little bit of what's going on. But I mean, I, I think that even beyond the juiced ball, maybe this is just a place where a little bit of smarts where you say, you know, if a position is, we can, you can get away with just having a warm body out there and we can pick which guy we want in the lineup. It's a way in which thinking a little differently about positions grabs you a little bit of extra offense. And so paying attention to some of those little tiny details can grab you, I don't know, a couple extra hits a year, but eventually that adds up. Yeah, I think in in support of that is the managers who rewrite their entire defensive lineup every five or six innings. You look at the, you know, Terry Francona, AJ Hinch, Dave Roberts, Joe Madden, you know, we think of those guys as the the more creative, smarter, for lack of a better word, managers. And these are guys who, I guess, have the confidence to push buttons a little bit more aggressively. Well, maybe it isn't even that. It's it's that you know we have in our heads this idea of you know when you when you introduce yourself, you know, I'm a second baseman. That you know that kind of comes along with you know, well, you're a second baseman, and that that doesn't change. And you can move guys around. You know, there's no reason that, you know, and the, the pitcher and the catcher have places where they have to stand and or squat. But the other seven fielders, they can go, they can go hang out and right field together if they want. And it takes a little bit of creativity to see beyond, you know, the, the kind of the tyranny that calling yourself something imposes and to say, okay, well, you know, second baseman. Well, what does that mean? That's kind of packed with a lot of cultural meaning and expectations of where the guy stands. 
And well, you know, what if, you know, he, he's shading the guy up the middle and he's playing basically right behind the second base bag. What if we send him over to third and back to second and back to third and back to second and back to third and back to second? And, you know, you can do that. It's legal. And you can make a case for some of these things where you go, you know, maybe you can pick up a little extra value here and there. And so, you know, that ability to, to not be bound by those unwritten rules of, you know, a second baseman is a second baseman because he's the second baseman, that you can move past that and and actually pick up a little extra value for your team. So a few years ago, you actually went looking for a value to this effect. You tried mm-hmm. to quantify it. You called it the Benzobrist effect. <laughs> and I don't know whether we need a new name or a new avatar for, for this effect now that Zobrist's value is is kind of in the tank. But it's the same idea. It's, is there a, an extra value to being able to play these multiple positions that is not currently captured in the numbers? And this is a difficult thing to find, but you sort of found something. <laughs> How did you go about looking and uh, what might you still be missing? Well, I mean, if you think about a Zobrist and Ben Zobrist was, was so cool because he could play second base and he could play right field. And if you stuck him at short, it, it wouldn't look too bad. And, you know, he could maybe fill in at third. And he was, you know, kind of your classic super utility player. And he hit like crazy and provided a lot of value just kind of by virtue of that he played some, some more difficult positions. But, you know, if you also think about it, Ben Zobrist allowed when he was in Tampa Bay, Joe Madden, and then when he moved to Chicago, Joe Madden, the ability to kind of move him around and do some other things with the rest of his roster. Like, for example, if you have a guy who can kind of go back and forth between second and right field, you can do something like a mixed position platoon. If you can find, you know, a right-handed hitting second baseman and a left-handed hitting outfielder, and, you know, normally you couldn't make those guys a platoon, but if you have a Zobrist who can kind of bridge that gap and, you know, play one place against lefties and one place against righties, then you have that. If you have a guy who can move around, then when somebody gets hurt or needs an off day, you don't have to pull, you know, your kind of the last guy on the bench into the lineup because he's the only one who can point to shortstop. You can have your Zobrist or somebody else kind of slide over and, you know, maybe pull one of your better bench guys into the lineup. And so you just don't lose as much production. And so I, I looked for some of those ways that a guy could provide value on a roster and came up with, you know, it's probably worth, it's not, you know, worth, you know, five extra wins, but you could probably scratch out again, a few extra runs, half a win, something like that, just by having a guy like that on your roster that allows you just a tiny bit more flexibility to just get better guys into the lineup or better matchups into the lineup. And I wonder if one of the reasons this might be hard to quantify is that, I mean, that effect goes even beyond the manager to the front office. And what I wrote about You know, Jose yeah. Ramirez earlier this season, how he's been whatever Cleveland has needed over the, right. the past three years, really. Like that's just from a general manager's perspective, that's a huge benefit as well. I don't, you know, I don't know how you go about quantifying that effect. Well, I mean, it's you know, then you get into the value that comes from, okay, I know I've got Jose Ramirez who can play second and play third and play short in a pinch. And for a while, they had him in left field again, just, you know, like I said a little bit earlier, that he was one of those guys that you just say, oh, let's throw him out in left field because we have a spot open out there. And as a general manager, you then have the ability to say, okay, maybe I don't need to go when I'm looking at trade targets or if I'm looking at, you know, free agents, 
I, I don't have to go scraping for this particular position because, you know, I've, I've got a little bit of extra cover there. Or even something like I've got a guy who can play all four infield positions and play in the corner outfield spots if I need him to. And so maybe I can take one of those extra bench spots and find a reliever who does something that we need him to do. And whether that's, you know, an extra loogie or if that's just kind of a sponge guy that keeps the other guys fresher. And so, you know, the general manager has a little bit more leeway to consider a broader range of options. And maybe maybe he just goes with a, a different bench player, but at least he can entertain, okay, which one of those gives us the most value rather than being hamstrung by, well, I got to pick this guy because he does the one thing that I need to do. Yeah, right. And I'm trying to remember if you actually wrote about this or if I'm imagining it. It's like the rule 34 of baseball analysis is that if you can think of a research topic, (laughs) Russell has probably written about it. But did you go looking to see if there are more Zobrists in training today than there used to be in the minors? There, you know, I I wrote a thing about, I, I looked at minor league data and I looked specifically at because we have, again, creepily obsessive uh, data collection uh, standards. Yeah. You know, we have positional data for uh, minor leaguers going back a while. And so I looked to see if there were guys who were down there who were bouncing back and forth between positions, uh, which some teams do. They'll rotate guys around and try and give them, you know, a taste of a bunch of different positions. And, you know, for a long time, the thought process was, you know, a guy should specialize and he should just stick to second base or shortstop or center field or whatever he was going to play ideally at the big leagues, so that he learned all about that and that he didn't have to worry about learning three positions while he was also trying to learn to hit and also trying to be, you know, 20 and just kind of growing up as a human being, that at least he, he didn't have to worry about all that. So what I did was I looked and I said, well, if you have people who are switching positions back and forth in the minor leagues, does it seem to affect their output? And the answer turned out to be no. It, it seemed that they were doing just fine. They were able to, mm-hmm. at least it didn't affect their minor league stats. Now, I don't know that I can extend that up to the major league level and say that, you know, there's not some sort of penalty to be paid for that. But at least when I looked at it at the minor league level, there was no concern that, uh, that I had uh, as far as people who were floating around the diamond. Mm-hmm. So one thing I'm interested in, in in this article, you had a chart of the number of players who had done five games on the mound and five games in the field <laughs> yeah. uh, in a given season. And it, it almost completely dies out by the mid-19-teens. And part of that is just the higher the, the level of play, the more you need to specialize. But I wonder if that positional flexibility, and we're seeing it with the, the failed Christian Betancourt experiment, and the Rays apparently are going to try to let Brendan McKay go both ways until mm-hmm. he proves that he can't. Like, I wonder if that flexibility is going to become valuable enough that teams start purpose developing two-way players again. So we can go to a de facto 17-man uh, pitching <laughs> staff on a 25-man roster. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Chris Jimenez is a is an instructive thing in the way that the Twins are using him. Because if you look at his game log, the games that he appeared in were all like 15 to 3 losses. And I mean, he was, he was there just, I mean, strictly to sponge innings. Mm-hmm. And I think that for that purpose, I mean, once you get to the ninth inning of a game that's 15 to 3, you just need a warm body on the mound to chuck the ball in the direction of home plate. And why burn a quote unquote real pitcher in those situations if you don't have to? And I think teams are, are starting to recognize more and more that, you know, position players pitching is just kind of, a smart strategy. And of course, Twitter goes crazy for it, but it's, it's a smart strategy for just kind of preserving your resources. You know, that game is gone. Just let it go. Why throw good money after bad? 
So I think that that same way that when you start realizing that, you know, a spot just isn't as important, you just need a warm body. Okay, what's the warm body that's going to do the least amount of damage to our team's chances for tomorrow? You start saying, okay, maybe the utility infielder or the backup catcher like Jimenez is the best spot. And I think that probably the way this works its way in is that you might start seeing more Chris Jimenez's in the sense of you kind of teach a guy how to throw an inning and not hurt right. himself. Just to make sure that he can get through three outs. Right. We've seen enough position players where that's not a given. Right. I mean, you, you get guys who come in and they, they want to show that, you know, they've been waiting for this moment since they were in Little League and, you know, they want to show off their, their fastball and they end up throwing out an arm or something like that. And, you know, you just kind of teach a guy, okay, here's how to throw, you know, 20 pitches and just let them hit it because they're going to hit it and they're going to score three runs and your ERA is going to be horrible, but we don't pay you for your ERA. So, so I think that's the way it makes its way in. And then, you you know, you start thinking about McKay or Shohei Otani or some of the guys who are, I mean, in, in McKay's case, he's a prep prospect and Otani's an NPB. And I think that there's this fantasy of th- that they could be stars on both sides of the diamond. And I mean, it is really, really tough to do that. I mean, if you think about, I, I took a list of, you know, I showed how many guys had done five on the mound and five at a position over the course of time. And the last time before Jimenez was in 1966, and, and that was like a one-off and, and it was a guy who they were bringing from kind of a corner outfielder to a pitching role. And because it's so hard to do, and then you think about over the course of a career, you're talking about, you know, a guy like Rick Ankeel, who was a good pitcher and then turned himself into, you know, a passable outfielder. You had Adam Lowen, who kind of went the other way backward and had two kind of separate careers. It's so hard to do that. I'm sure, there are guys who are athletic enough to do it, but the amount of reps and the amount of time that it takes to master both crafts probably doesn't work out. I mean, I prove me wrong, folks. I'm happy to be wrong on this one. But I think that the way that that's going to start working its way into the majors is more the Chris Jimenez route. So you made a case in another April article that the shift maybe had gotten to the point where it was overused, or Mm -hmm. at least that we shouldn't continue to see the same skyrocketing increase with subsequent seasons that we've seen (laughs) for several years in a row. Right. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, that seems to be the case. The number of shifts has finally leveled off this season. But we have seen some weird stuff happen, and I listed a few of those incidents earlier in this segment. So you wrote about one of them, the Astrobel Cabrera, Travis Darno yeah. positional switcheroo in the most recent article you published. You tried to see whether that would actually make sense, and and that was a desperation move for yeah. the Mets. They had multiple infielders unavailable, and they just had to do that. But you wrote about whether it might make sense just as a tactic that teams could regularly employ, and you've written previously about an outfield equivalent of this where you would switch left fielders and right fielders based on the headedness of the batter. So is either of those a viable strategy, do you think? Well, I, I looked at it's basically on, you know, you know what the handedness of the batter is going to be. And if you know nothing else about the batter other than which side of the plate he's standing on, you can at least get some idea of which spot on the field he's more likely to hit it to. Right-handed hitters tend to pull the ball to the left, and left-handed hitters tend to pull the ball to the right. And we, of course, have spray charts, and we have scouting, and we have all that sort of stuff that tells us some idea. And you're not going to get it right 100% of the time, but if you had a guy that you were trying to hide, 
to make sure that fewer balls were going to get to him. You could start to do that, or you could at least reduce the amount of traffic that he would have to handle. I did left fielder and right fielder at one point just to see, okay, if I know that, you know, a, a lefty's up, I'm going to stick the bad fielder in left field and the good fielder in right field and see if they, you know, they can kind of, because the, the batter's more likely to hit the ball to right field. And to see, you know, as the batters came up and went left, right, left, right, they, you know, the left and right fielder would just change spots. And I didn't find a whole lot. I, when I ran through the math, I'm like, eh, this, this is probably worth, you know, some, some tiny bit of value. Maybe you could get something out of it. But frankly, it would just kind of eventually just devolve into a clown show. And, you know, there's probably a, a point where you just look like you're trying too hard. But I looked at the second and third base one and I, I did the math on that one. If you, you figure that you've got a guy who's, he has to be like minimally competent on the infield. And I mean, he's probably a bad infielder in the way that major league players are bad baseball players. You know, they would be gods in your park and rec league, but they, uh, you know, they're, you know, quote unquote bad. But let's say that he's, you know, kind of, if you left him at second or third, he'd be, you would lose 20 runs or so below the, the average major league second or third baseman. Well, you know, you might say, well, you know, but if he's an upgrade on the offensive side of 25 runs, that's good. You know, we might, we might make that trade. And again, if you take a look at that, you know, how righties and lefties put the ball in play and that, and if that's all you knew, you could start shifting them back and forth. And I, I calculated maybe take away about, oh, I don't know, 10, 20% of his traffic that he might otherwise have to handle. And, you know, suddenly he's not as much a liability because he just isn't getting as many balls. So he doesn't have as much, uh, much of a chance to goof up and, you know, have balls go past him or boot balls or whatever he's going to do. So you start, you say, well, you know, instead of giving up 20 runs, he's only going to give up, you know, 16 or 15 or something like that. And, you know, that's five runs. And that's, you know, as we kind of do 10 runs as a win, that's half a win. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that there are a lot of teams that have done a lot more to chase a lot less than, than a half a win. And all you have to do is just have the second and third baseman shift back and forth with each batter like the, the Mets did the other night. So when they were doing that, one of the first things that popped into my mind, and this applies to four-man outfields and that concept of like, what if we do go positionless and just mm-hmm. think of the seven fielders who must be in fair territory and, and play them wherever. How do you create advanced defensive metrics off of that without any sort of positional <laughs> grounding? So I remember Brett Laurie looked like prime Scott Rowland yeah. on UZR for a year because he was shifting so much. So do you just go to tracking data? Like how, how would you approach that problem? Well, I think the thing is that our quote unquote advanced metrics up until somebody realized, oh, you know, Brett Laurie, because he was listed as the third baseman, but on a shift, they would put him in short right field kind of between the first and second baseman and then offset back from the infield. And David Ortiz would hit a ground ball right to him. And he looked like a third baseman who was making a play 150 feet from where he was supposed to be. So he must have superhuman range. And I mean, it was really just kind of a a ground ball hit right at him that he threw over to first. And, you know, it wasn't anything superhuman about it. And I think that the advanced metrics for a little while were kind of caught in that idea of, well, if you say that somebody's a third baseman, I think I have a pretty good idea of where he's standing. And, you know, once that was thrown out the window, the numbers started looking weird. So, I mean, I think that the nice thing about StatCast is that it gives, instead of 
he's the third baseman, so we kind of just assume that he's somewhere in this particular neighborhood on the graph. We actually know pinpoint where he was and how far away he was and how far he had to go to get the ball and how much time he had. And we can start calculating, you know, max range and acceleration and route efficiency and all that other stuff that they like to calculate out. And so you're, you're going to have to go much more leading on StatCast than a lot of the old metrics, which worked fine when everybody was kind of standing where they'd been standing for the last hundred years. But just once you've gotten rid of that assumption, then you need a better way of collecting your data that reflects the realities on the ground. So one more for me, your second most recent article was about the Waxahachie swap. Has nothing to do with the band. This is the baseball tactic (laughs) that involves moving a pitcher into the field, often left field, as we were talking about earlier, to preserve a platoon advantage in a subsequent plate appearance. And we see this every now and then, and it's always fun when it happens because you imagine that the team is taking this risk that a ball is going to be hit to the fielder and he's going to do something silly. Usually that doesn't happen and it's uneventful and he just stands there and then returns to the mound. But you took an analytical look at this to see if it actually makes sense. I wanted it to make sense as I was reading, but ultimately you concluded that there's probably a reason why we don't see this more often. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, once you look at the the numbers, the the outcome is kind of like, eh, meh, it, does, it all kind of cancels out because there are a couple things. I mean, you do get the advantage of an extra, you usually do it to preserve a lefty who, you know, faces one lefty, there's a righty who comes up, the lefty goes out to left field, right-handed reliever comes in, and then the lefty goes back to the mound for another lefty. There was one Mets game where Jesse Orozco and Roger McDowell did this for a couple innings. Well, I think that's because everybody, it was like the 14th inning right, and everybody was... got thrown out or something. But I remember, I've seen that box score and it's, uh, it, it is a thing of beauty, but it's- It's uh, awesome. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it makes for such lovely box scores, but the point of the game isn't to write a lovely box box score it's to you know win the game so what you have i mean you do get some advantage from preserving the extra case of having the platoon advantage but what i found was that you also knock the left fielder out of the game and if he's a decent hitter you've got to bring your fourth outfielder in eventually to cover you know what the hole that's eventually left and chances are, you know, that spot in the lineup's going to come up and you lose some of the going from your, you know, your, your regular left fielder to your fourth outfielder is going to have some kind of, of drop. And if, you know, it's usually in a closer game, so it's more likely that that game's going to go extra innings. And so then you start talking about, okay, do you lose two plate appearances and extra inning plate appearances are by definition high leverage. So, you know, you, you kind of, once you realize you've got all that to deal with, the tiny amount of value that you can gain starts to bleed away. Plus, you also do have to think about, you know, that pitcher is not a trained left fielder. And usually it's not going to happen that the ball is going to be hit to him. But, you know, of course, the one time your favorite team does it, that's the time that the ball is hit to that left fielder slash pitcher and he boots it and it's all a giant mess. And you see that highlight shown constantly for the next five years. But the the real reason that teams probably don't do it as much comes back to we live in a world of seven and eight man bullpens. So if you just want to preserve the platoon, you probably have three lefties out there anyway. And so you just instead of having two pitchers do it and, and sacrifice your left fielder, you just do it with, you know, lefty, righty, lefty, and everybody whines about the amount of mid inning pitching switches. But that's, you know, that you can do the, get the same effect. And if you already have the guys who are out there, well, you know, why not do it? Why get too cute, basically? 
Yeah, I wonder if, and this is my last one, is what the limit to things like the Waxahachie swap, which is too cool a term for me to let that go by without saying it myself, <laughs> and things like the Darno Cabrera swap and four-man outfields and that sort of thing. Are teams determining that like at some point it's just not worth bothering, or do you think that there's a normative component that eventually the your opponent and the fans and everybody's going to get sick of watching Kyle Schwarber and Chris Bryant run back and forth from left to right field after every batter? Or, you know, or that this is going to be seen as Bush or trying too hard. Oh, I think that there's probably a normative component of it. I mean, I think that if you think about it, that there are these things that are tried for a reason because somebody kind of sat down and at least even if, you know, a manager wasn't doing the calculations, he at least thought, you know, I could at least squeeze some tiny bit of value out of this. And, you know, maybe he was in a desperate enough situation to do it. Well, you know, if it was a good idea in one set of circumstances, then it's probably a good idea in another set of circumstances. So, I mean, the Waxahachie swap, maybe it's not something you you should see every day. But, you know, we see this, what, once every, I don't know, every other year or something like that. You know, one team will do it. And you got to imagine that there are probably games where teams could conceivably do that, and it would make sense if you sat down and took 20 minutes between plate appearances and everybody got out their calculators and, and figured it out. You got to figure that, that those are out there, but teams just don't do that until it's more, you know, desperate times or they're just kind of feeling a little mischievous or something. But I'm guessing there's a normative component to it in that, you know, there, there is that, you know, oh, that's Bush or, you know, you're, you look like you're trying too hard. We live in a culture where people are expected to, you know, as my wife likes to say, we live in the, oh, I woke up looking like this culture. And, you know, where it's assumed that people will just kind of do things and the, the mark of being sophisticated is you don't look like you're doing any work to get it done. It's just, you know, I just kind of, I woke up looking like this. I did um, wake up looking more. like this, by the way. I did too, but you, <laughs> let's just say I'm happy that this is an audio podcast. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, this is my first time podcasting as a father of five. So this is, uh, you can imagine how I look. I'm right surprised now. you're waking up at all this morning. I, I don't know. I don't remember the last 15 minutes. So if I said anything embarrassing, I just blame the twins. So. <laughs> Yes. Well, Russell Carlton is not only a father of new twins, but he is an author of Baseball Prospectus. You can find him writing there every week. He has a book coming out next spring, which mm -hmm. is called The Shift, although it is not exclusively about The Shift, so Michael can still read it. And you can find him on Twitter at Pizza Cutter 4, where he curates the internet for you. And if there's a, a piece of good baseball research out there, Russell will probably command you to read it. So we are happy to have him on. Thank you, Russell, for coming on. Uh, thanks. This has been awesome. How do you know? You can't remember it. Yeah. Eh, you know, I, I'm told. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> I'm going to buy four copies of your book and then put them all on one side of my bookshelf. <laughs> 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 my my publisher will be very happy to hear you say that. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. So one name that came up when we were talking about the two-way player as a potential mop-up guy is Paul Yanish, who served that role for the 2009 Reds. 
he he had a couple memorable mop-up appearances, one of them in a 22 to 1 game against the Phillies where Cole Hamels threw 7 innings of one run ball and Johnny Cueto gave up 9 runs in 2 thirds of an inning. This was during a, a point in history where the Phillies and Reds went like 4 years uh without playing a game that wasn't just totally bizarre. <laughs> right. Between that and another mop-up appearance earlier in the season, Paul Yanish ended his his uh, major league career and he actually did end and his professional career quite recently he's coming home to be an assistant coach at rice university right here in houston so here's the college baseball college baseball segment all right yeah maybe the heir apparent to wayne graham you know 183 year old wayne graham so anyway paul yanish has a career era of 4950 that felt so weird coming out of my mouth i couldn't (laughs) i couldn't even get it out of my mouth 4950 i'm gonna say it again that is and i looked this up the highest ever in Major League history for a pitcher yeah. with at least two career innings pitched. Oh, fun fact. Yeah. All right. You don't get as far down this list as as I'm comfortable with before you start running into actual pitchers. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like I was just sort of scrolling down this idly and Brady Rogers is at 15-12 and I don't remember him. Like I, I thought he would have, you know, at least been able to water that down, but yikes. <laughs> Yes. Well, R.I.P. Paul Yanish's career. That is probably not what you his want to be remembered career. by. Yes. Now his playing career. Potential robust college coaching career. <laughs> That's right. Which I know will be very important to you. So we will end there. We'll be back on Monday with a new show. As always, you've been listening to the Ringer MLP show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Do you have any profound quotes you want to take us out on? I gave you the one. That's more than, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's more than you've delivered in 102 episodes. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> that is completely fair. All right. Then we will just let Ben Gibbard play us out as always. Yeah.